Hello everyone and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack Dilobobolik, and my lovely, luscious, literature doctorate wife. Hi, I'm Emmeline Dilobobolik. A label that's actually true for once. Yeah, I do have a, a PhD in French and Francophone studies. Watch, in chronological order, every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture. And today's movie is... The Life of Emile Zola. Alternate title, The Ayatollah Rock and Rolla Emile Zola. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Ayatollah Rock and Rolla is taken from a description of the villain of Mad Max 2, Lord Humongous. <laughs> oh, gosh. I've never seen that one. Me neither. I huh? just know that line. Poster. The poster it's is... It's terrible. It's... <laughs> it's... By far the most basic one we've seen, I think. It has the same, almost has the same a blue background as Grand Hotel. Yeah, it's another just head poster. At least it's got stylized coloring, but also this does not look like Zola looks in the movie. And it also really doesn't look like the actor who plays Zola. No, this looks like Alec Baldwin. You're right. You're right. And I don't know why. I don't know either, but yeah, it's supposed to be, yeah, supposed to be Zola, supposed to be uh, Paul Muni who, who plays Zola, but it just... They got together and said, what's the one thing we could do that's worse than putting just heads of the actors on the poster? We could put the head of an actor who's not in the movie on the poster. <laughs> yeah, it is not a very good likeness. But it has some some play with light. You can see some like shadow. There's the title, "The Life of Emile Zola," is uh, written in, in like yellow, light yellow at the bottom of the of the poster, and there's some yellow reflected on his face yeah. as well. The colors are really good. Just please, God, give us a poster that actually says something show, about the movie. Show me anything besides just a big fat human head. Yeah. My kingdom for an image other than a person. Jesus. Yep. Should we move on to characters and actors? Save me from this poster, please. I will. All right, characters and actors. So we have Paul Muni as Emile Zola. His real name is Friedrich Mechelen Meyer Weisenfreund. Jeez. Uh, he was born in the... Auto-Hungarian uh, Empire in a city that is now Kiev, uh, Ukraine. He was nominated three times uh, for Best Actor over the course of his career, and he had won just the year before this movie, in, in 1936, for playing the role of uh, Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur. Another biopic. Uh, another biopic about uh, the doctor. Uh, he was uh, one of the doctors who invented some of uh, some uh, vaccines and penicillin and stuff like that. What a I career believe. to always uh, pretend to be other great men. Yeah. Uh, then we have uh, Gloria Holden, who plays Alexandrine Zola, his wife. Joseph. Schildkraut, who plays Captain Alfred Dreyfus. And I'll, I'll say Dreyfus, because in French it is Dreyfus. Uh, we Gail... don't want none of that cheese talk over here. <laughs> the God-fearing U.S. of A. Too bad. <laughs> Gail Sondergaard, uh, who plays Lucy Dreyfus. 
Donald Crisp, who plays Maître Labori, or I don't know how, what, how would you pronounce this in English? Uh, that's got an accent mark. Yeah. <laughs> English does not do well with accent well, marks, so your guess is way better than mine. He, well, it is, a, it is the title in French, Maître, which is the, uh, the title, uh, an old title for lawyers. Major D. Is this the lawyer with the very square bangs? Yeah. Yeah, I could never yeah. catch his name in the... Yeah, Mitch. Mitch. I'm just like in Mitch D. Okay. Yep. Aaron O'Brien Moore, who plays Nana. Henry O'Neill as Colonel Picard. <laughs> Morris Karnofsky, who plays Anatole France. His last name was actually France. Yeah, he was a poet and, oh. a, and a, um, a novelist. He wrote mostly uh, poems and short, uh, short stories. And Vladimir Sokolov, who plays Paul Cezanne, who is a, a painter, a post-impressionist painter. Yep. Emile's uh, roommate in the beginning. Yes. Some information about the movie. It was directed by uh, William Dieterl, Dieterl, I don't know. Yeah. It was based on a book by uh, Matthew Josephson entitled Zola and His Time. It was distributed by uh, Warner Brothers. It's our first Warner Brothers. First Warner Brothers. Movie. Yep, we get the big black and white WB logo. Yeah. The release date was August 11th, 1937. And the running time is 116 minutes, and the budget at the time was just a tiny bit under $700,000. So, not bad. Most of which would be spent on the props decorating Zola's home. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was it... Stuffed to the gills with fine china. Yeah, the, the Paris mansion was very gaudy yep. to me. Okay, some fun facts about the, the movie. For those among you who are not familiar with uh, Emile Zola, his full name was Emile Edouard Charles Antoine Zola. Uh, so, for uh, an English speaking audience, Emile Edward Charles Antoine Zola. He was born uh, on April 2nd, 1840, and died on uh, September 29th, 1902. He was a novelist, a journalist, a playwright, and a poet. He's one of the most prominent figures of French literature of all time. literary giant. Yes. The year before this movie, so as I said, uh, Muni had played Louis Pasteur in another biopic. His wife was played by Josephine Hutchinson. And at first, the producers of The Life of Emile Zola wanted to also cast her to play Alexandrine Zola because they had such good chemistry in the, in the other movie that they wanted to repeat it, but the role eventually went to uh, Gloria Holden. Originally, the title proposed for the movie was, uh, a quote, Emile Zola, The Conscience of Humanity. <laughs> And the first script focused more on the Dreyfus affair than on uh, Zola's actual literary career. Emil Zola, the Jiminy Cricket for all of us. <laughs> Other titles that were considered uh, are uh, The Truth is on the March, yep. uh, I Accuse, yep. or Destiny. Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Destiny has to, has to do with this movie. It's a but... lofty sounding word. Yes. 
the film was selected for preservation in 2000 by the Library of Congress for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, end quote. Although the film was very well received at the time of its release, it has faced some more recent criticism for its timidity in not using words such as anti-Semitism or even Jew, which uh, we see it written on paper on screen, but is not pronounced out loud and the in paper, the movie. The paper's not even sure about it because there's a question yeah, mark. Yeah, there's a question mark about it. Jew? Yeah. Question mark? Uh, the film was uh, shot over 52 days. And there is a, a beautiful uh, scene towards the end of the movie where Amini has a, a speech that was actually shot in just one take. It was a six-minute six take. Yep. A recreation of event and the speech given, the actual speech given at that event. Yes. Uh, the French government apparently banned the movie <laughs> in uh, 1939 because of its relation with the uh, Dreyfus affair and because of the rise of anti-Semitism. Talking, yeah, talking shit about the, the French army. Can't have that. Yeah. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Sheesh. Including Best Director, Best Actor, Best Art Direction, Best Music, Best Sound Recording, <laughs> Best Writing of an Original Story, and Best Assistant Director. And it won three Academy Award uh, Awards for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Joseph Schildkraut, and Best Writing Screenplay. Okay, good. I was hoping it wouldn't get the one for Best Sound because this is one of those old movies where you can just like hear static yes, the entire so time. Much, so much. And then last piece is that it's, to this day, it still has a, a 91% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, not surprised. It's a good movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. That's a good movie. And that's it for me for now. All right, on to the plot. Let's do it. Opening credits in Roman-style font. Did you notice this? How it was like carved into marble, the same kind of font you would expect to see like Roman numerals in? No, I did not. Reminded me a lot of the Disney version of Hercules. Oh, I can see that now, yep. yeah. Golden Age of Heroes. Yeah. And the greatest of all these heroes was the mighty Emile Zola. Yes. And then we get a warning. This production has its basis in history. The historical basis, however, has been fictionalized for the purposes of this picture, and the names of many characters, many characters themselves, the story, incidents, and institutions are fictitious. With the exception of known historical characters, whose actual names are herein used, no identification with actual persons, living or dead, is intended or should be inferred. A movie version of that uh, bubble-bursting thing you get on in the inside of every book cover about how... These are all fictional characters and don't get too worked up about it. Yeah. Paris, 1862. In a rundown loft, Emile Zola tears up a blanket and stuffs the strips into holes in the glass of the window while his roommate Paul paints. Called a window, but it's more like a skylight. Yes, for those of you who are familiar with uh, Paris architecture, it looks like what we call like a chambre de bonne, which is like... A really, uh, a really tiny, tiny studio, like a, a on the at the top of a building of an apartment building. Yeah, right, for those dumb Americans who don't know what the hell she just said, it's a very small room with a slanted roof, <laughs> <laughs> and the window is like going up the slant, and there's holes. They're tiny little square window panes, making up the, the larger window, and 
nearly every single one of them has a chip or a piece out of it. Yeah. I don't know how the whole thing hasn't just shattered, but he's stuffing the holes full of his blanket. Yeah, to try and keep warm. Paul chuckles and tells him it's no use. It would take half the rags in Paris to plug all the holes. Ah, Paris, says Zola, vast and brooding. You must paint it, Paul, and someday I will write it. Paul has his doubts, because people don't want the truth. They want perfumed lies, like these, he says, dramatically knocking books off a shelf. <laughs> and they tumble to the floor. They should be burned for the lies that they are. I would have liked to see, you know, which books they were. Like, uh, who whose books did they have that were the, the, the lies? Yeah, it, I, I didn't see any titles or uh, authors' names. I don't know that they even had titles on them. They were just, seemed like generic prop books because they were just white covers with nothing on them and pages. I would not be surprised at all if they were just blank pages in there. (laughs) Zola thinks this is a wonderful idea, but Paul wonders if maybe selling them would be better. And expose others to their hypocrisy? Never. Into the furnace they go. He actually kneels down and starts like ripping the pages out and stuffing them into the furnace. They're very dramatic and very serious about their art. Their literary slaughter is interrupted by a knock at the door, and Zola fears that it is someone coming for rent, so he jumps into bed and tells Paul to say that he has a horribly contagious disease. And she mentioned this this entire space is incredibly barren. Yeah. Like, there's next to no furniture in here, and their clothes are threadbare, and the, the bed he jumps into, the blanket is, like, made out of rags sewn together. They are living in poverty. It turns out to be Zola's mother, though, and wife with news that Zola has a job now. And Zola is ecstatic at first. I have a job! I have a job! And then he goes, wait, what is the job? (laughs) Uh, Zola is to be a clerk with the great book publisher LaRue. Zola is ecstatic. LaRue. LaRue. We cut to the exterior of LaRue, where we see Zola stocking books in the window. His wife stops by to tell him that the butcher won't take any more credit from them and that the landlord is being nasty about rent. And could he ask for an advance? He says, I've already asked for two advances this month. I, yeah. I'll, I'll do the best, but I can't promise anything. Their conversation is interrupted by Zola being summoned to the back by the boss. Waiting in the back is an agent of the police who informs Zola that the public prosecutor is not happy with his recently published work. Yeah, I just, I, his face just, I don't, the face of the, the police uh, officer to me just... I don't know how to describe it. It's just, it, I expected the, the words to come out of his mouth uh, to be like, I am most displeased. Yeah, he's very, he's not even in a police uniform. He's like, no. he's someone above the rank and file officers because he's just wearing a top hat in a civilian. So he's, you know, he's someone in upper tier management. And like a big sort of trench coat or something over his clothes. Yeah, this has been uh, taken up a notch yeah. already. Yeah. Not happy with the recently published work. Why? asks Zola. The reply, it is a bad book. <laughs> <laughs> it will cause harm to public morals. This is an official warning, and he doesn't want to have to come here again. The book in question is La Confession de Claude. Cla- uh, Claude's Confession. Zola's boss apologizes and makes sure the policeman knows he wasn't the one who published the book. But you are the employer, so you are responsible for your employee, is the response. The agent leaves, and Zola is informed that he will be given one last chance, but he must stop writing trash. 
Is that such a bad exchange for a job? Says the boss. Very bad, says Zola. <laughs> He's given his pay for the rest of the month and fired. Zola thanks his boss for giving him the paid month of writing, and his boss says that uh, maybe going hungry will teach him something. And Zola comes back in uh, with a dig at the boss's weight, saying that a fat stomach prevents you from seeing what's going on around you, and that he's going to dig up all the trash and stir up the whole rotten mess, and maybe once he's caused enough of a stench, something will be done about it. That sounds it really felt like something that... I think from what I know about Zola and his life, it felt like something that he would have said. Yeah, I appreciate that Zola just, from the very beginning, never backs down. Yeah. He never capitulates or gives an inch to any of these people who tell him that he shouldn't be writing. His response is always just, fuck you, I write what I want. And... Yeah, the opening scene with uh, him and uh, Paul Cezanne when they were talking about hypocrisy in, in arts work... It, it's something that continues throughout the the movie. Like the the word hypocrisy comes back uh, comes back a little later in another scene with Paul Cezanne and and Emile Zola, and it just it feels like yeah, and they both feel like two people who didn't want to go along with what society had planned for them or uh, what society w wanted to just put out for people to appreciate. And they just wanted to stay as real as possible. Yeah, they're men with strong convictions and stand by them even in the face of the authorities trying to get them to shut up. Yeah. Stop talking about all the terrible things we're doing. Then we move into a series of quick scenes about the, the tragedy of the common people in Paris. In the first, Zola sees a woman jump into the river at night, and when he tries to run down to help her, he is stopped by a homeless man on the embankment, who tells him that the woman is better off than all these, indicating the dozens of other people huddled, huddled together by the water. They're like completely stuffed in there. There's yeah. dozens of them. And <laughs> I guess Zola just gives up after that and doesn't try and save her because we just immediately move on to the next scene. Well, she's also, she's probably jumped in the Seine, which has, a, it's not a rapid current, but if she's jumped in and she's already dead, like she's probably sinking already. There's no point in trying uh, to go she, and dig her she's out. She's already in the ocean when, uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next, Zola sees, I guess this is a mine explode, because there's like yeah. cart tracks going into it, and it, an explosion, I guess, or yeah, a collapse, yeah. something violent and terrible that you don't want to be in. And he asks one of the workers running by uh, why the safety doors weren't closed, and is told that they don't waste money on safety doors. And then a policeman uh, comes up to Zola and says, hey, get the hell out of here. Yeah. We then see Zola trying to get a story about military corruption published, uh, but he's told that the stories are space fillers at best and is offered 10 francs. Take it or leave it. Uh, next, we see women being chased by police through the snowy streets and one flees into a restaurant to hide. We never are told explicitly what is going on here, but... Uh, They're chasing prostitutes yeah. and trying to round them up and arrest them. You know, you just know from the context that they're and their dress that they're prostitutes being rounded up. Yeah. The owner tries to shoo her out, but Zola and Paul are sitting near the door and they offer her a chair as she turns to, to walk back outside. Policeman then enters and goes right to Zola's table. Zola tells him the woman is a friend of his, uh, and even though the policeman doesn't believe him, he leaves without uh, making an issue of it. He asks, well, if she's a friend, what's her name? What? <laughs> and they just shrug and yeah. say, well, I'm, I'm telling you she's a friend. They have this... Both Paul, Suzanne, and Emizura uh, have on their face, I wish 
I could describe it appropriately, but it's just a very French expression, which is if somebody asks you something and you don't want to give them the answer or you don't really know a good answer, it's just like boop. And it's, I don't know. <laughs> it's like a, a facial shrug yeah a facial shrug where right. the, yeah. the corners of your mouth are just going downwards and like, boom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't know what to tell you man and is this the first time we've seen snow in any of the movies i certainly it stood I out to me so. as like the first time seeing snow on people's outfits because it's on like the policeman's uniform as he comes in to look for her i think so because even in uh... Cavalcade? Even in Cavalcade, it was December when we first, when the movie first opens. We may have we don't see we, we don't see snow. May have seen snow on the ground, but I don't recall ever actively seeing it snowing like no. this before. Zola then asks the woman her name, and she says, "I'm going to pass this over to you instead of instead <laughs> you of me, me butchering these uh, French names." <laughs> so uh, first she says Satan in this district, Lucille. In Montmartre, uh, in Montparnasse, um, Georgette, or uh, she mispronounces it's supposed to be Madeleine, and she says Madeleine. Uh, does it matter? Yeah, I'm whoever you want me to be, honey. When did you come to Paris? asked Zola. A hundred years ago, when I was seventeen. You should have seen me then. I was lovely. Of course, I'm not bad now. If you look quick and the light is dim. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Zola says she's charming, and she wishes that she could tell him all her story. He asks her where she's from because he tells her that uh, her accent is not Parisian, which, bullshit, because they're all speaking in English, English, so of course her accent wouldn't be Parisian. (laughs) You're not speaking French English. Hmm. (laughs) A little little bump in the uh, believability that they just speed on past. Wants to tell him all his story. All her story. Uh, Why don't you? Says Zola, and we jump to Zola sitting on her bed with an open suitcase uh, full of artifacts of her life in front of him while she lays on the other side talking. It's got like pictures and her diary in it and all kinds of stuff. She tells him to take everything uh, if he wants to, except for a pair of baby clothes that belongs to her dead child. Paul then enters, and Zola asks him for the sketch he made of the woman, because as soon as she sat down at the restaurant, he he already had his like drawing pad out, and he just began to sketch her. Yeah. Upon receiving it, Zola says it looks magnificent, and he writes Nana on it, because he's decided that's the title of his next book, uh, which will be about this woman. For context, also, Nana is like a, a slang, can be a slang word in French. In French, we would say Nana or Gonzès, or which is like a chick, <laughs> a, a dame abroad, a bird. <laughs> yeah. Cut to a table full of copies of Chick or Nana, and a gentleman in a top hat stealthily taking a copy and stuffing it inside his coat while his wife pays for her own books at the counter. As they leave, she says she forgot to get her own copy of Nana. But he reprimands her and says that one doesn't read such things. It isn't proper. (laughs) Yeah. But after they leave, she comes back a few seconds later, like under the pretext of forgetting her umbrella or something. No, she did forget. She actually did forget. And the the clerk runs after her and is like, Madame, Madame, your umbrella. And when she comes back, she goes, you know, have a copy of Nana sent to my house. Oh, of course, Madame. Well, also, if it's not appropriate, how does the husband already know what it's about? Yeah. 
Outside, it's pouring rain, and Zola walks down the sidewalk with an umbrella possessed by Satan. This... <laughs> It's got holes in it. It's full of holes, and despite the fact that there is absolutely no wind at all, it is uh, constantly just turning itself inside out. Yes. There's no bluster at all. It just it pops into that shape. You, the Persian wind, you don't understand. It's invisible. It, it is. <laughs> and only moves umbrellas. Exactly. And then an umbrella seller comes up to him and tries to, to sell him one, and uh he declines by saying what and giving up the privilege of arguing with my old friend <laughs> which i thought it was a clever sentence i enjoyed it yeah it was very endearing he enters the bookshop and awkwardly stutters a request for an advance of a, f a few francs on nana he's sure it will sell uh, the owner was just writing him a letter as it happens when he arrived so instead of answering he gives him the letter which states that nana sold 36,000 copies in the first three days alone and enclosed is a check for 18,000 francs. Zola is speechless, but also still needs a few francs immediately in, in cash. cash. <laughs> maybe he can't get the cash checked for whatever reason, and he has You said, oh, maybe it's a Sunday, maybe but it's... at the time, uh, uh, a bookstore like this wouldn't have been open on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Mm, yeah. Only thing you should be reading is the Bible. Mm. So he need, he needs cash now, damn it. And then he goes uh, back outside and the same umbrella seller approaches him and he says, Yes, I'll take, I'll take five. No, a dozen. No, just one. Just one. Just one. He's gone mad with power immediately. And then he opens it and then that one does this, the exact same thing where it turns over on itself. Yeah, we have a scene of him looking at his own picture in the window. And yeah, yeah and the, the new umbrella also just... Whoom, it is a is a feature of Zola himself, not the umbrella. Exactly. When we next see Zola, he's placing a package on the door of the woman who inspired Nana. He knocks, uh, but leaves down the stairs before she can open the door. She opens and finds the package, and she opens it to find a copy of the book with some francs inside and a, a personal note to her. Then she and it's weird. I don't know if you noticed this, but the shot with her hand moving the, the francs out of the way, it was like stilted motion in the way that like stop motion stuff is. I have not noticed that. Yeah, it was weird. I don't know if they intended it for it to be that way or if it's just a, an artifact of the, the filming. Like maybe they... I wonder if maybe it was so that people had time to notice how much money he had, he had given her, but I, I don't remember even being able to notice how much money he gave her. Yeah, it's not, I wouldn't call it jerky, but it's just the, it's the tiny minuscule stops in between the motion that, that is noticeable in stop motion, yeah. in some stop motion. Then she hears a commotion outside, and all the women in the building rush to the window to see a military procession marching through the streets to deafening cheers, very reminiscent of the opening scene from All Quiet on a Western Front. Mm. Yeah, a column of soldiers marching through a, a very... Uh, I mean, Paris isn't a, a small European town, but at that particular section they were in... Did it not... looked like a small town. Yeah. yeah. A woman down on the street asks a man in the crowd what's going on, to which he replies, War has been declared. Isn't it glorious? And I think Zola is in that crowd too and hears that man's yes. comment and has a scowl. Yeah, yeah. He's not into it. This is, by the way, the uh, Franco-Prussian War of 1870, which lasted from July 1870 to January 1871. Not very long. Didn't, didn't take him too long for things to go sour. Cut to headline about the defeat of the French army and Zola and his family sharing their anxieties over the situation. 
His mother believes that they're all about to be murdered in their bed by Prussians, and his wife says there's not a scrap of food to be found anywhere, not even horse flesh. It is, so, for context, at the end of that war, it is the first time that uh, Germany is able to take some of the territories out of France, and that's when they invaded in what we call, I don't know what uh, the, the word is in English, but in French we would say, like, annexed, annexé. They took control over some regions of France, like the Alsace-Lorraine, and that's why to this day there are still people in uh, around Strasbourg who uh, speak dialects a uh, uh, mix of French and German. Mm. You ever get them back? Yeah, we got it back. All right. We uh, we got the, those regions back, but people still in, uh, in those regions have a, a, a strong connection to Germany and, and its language. Mm, yep. The impact is felt to this very day. Zola thinks that it will end in misery and bloodshed, as it always does, and that the generals are incompetent fools who pushed France into a war she wasn't ready for, and intends to make sure everyone knows who's at fault for the downfall of France. Cut to a French general reading The Downfall. And this is the quote from it. During the entire war of 1870, the execution of the campaign was lame, impotent, and nullified by petty jealousies among the generals, each of whom thought only of securing a field marshal's baton for himself. The minister of war enters the office while the general is reading and asks why the men look so disturbed. Have you read this book, sir? I never read books. Mm. Who is it by? And uh, this is true to life because I recall a moment when I was in boot camp, and in boot camp you have to take many, many, many classes. And in one of those classes, the instructor got up, and I do not remember what prompted him to say this, but he said, I think books are stupid. <laughs> and I said, oh, shit. Yeah, I think you, sir, are stupid. Yep. Who is it by, he says, and they tell him, Emile Zola. The minister is outraged that a civilian has dared to criticize the army. Uh, but one of the general staff, an, a man called Colonel Picard, Picard. Picard, which made me laugh because I did not remember that there was somebody named Picard uh, involved in, in this affair, but Picard, to me, has nothing to do with Emisola or uh, his books or this movie, but uh, Picard is the name of a chain of frozen food in mm. France. So as soon as I heard Picard, that's the the first thought that came through my mind. The TV din dinner general. Yes. Makes me think of Captain Picard from Star Trek. Hmm. Okay, a man named Colonel Picard says that the book is telling the truth and that the army shouldn't be afraid to admit its mistakes. The army does not make mistakes, replies the Minister of War, and recommends the chief censor be made aware of this civilian upstart. What a healthy, wonderful attitude. We are not capable of doing wrong. Oh boy. The civilian upstart is then seen entering the office of the censor, who informs him that every book he's written has caused trouble. The army heads are furious, and he has caused the whole of France to have a loss of confidence and respect. As it should. Yeah, Zola replies, a loss of confidence in inefficiency? Lose respect for cowardice and stupidity? That would be a pity, monsieur. Monsieur. I, I like how he says that, uh, the, the monsieur. Yeah, that would be a pity, yep. Zola always ready with a, a snappy comeback. No more books, says the censor. We only want what is best for the country. To which Zola replies, 
You will do what is best for yourself, monsieur, by leaving me strictly alone to write, to write what I please as I please. <laughs> yeah, he has this, yeah. a little bit of a growl or is a scowl in his voice like, as I please. Like a little, a little dog barking. Yes, dog barking. He has a, a that way of, of speaking where he, he he gesticulates a lot. He bobs his head a lot. Yeah. And like he gets, he moves around and... Towards the end of, it, of his sentences when he's angry, he has that little bark in yeah. his voice too. Where he'll uh, very quickly just blah, 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 like shake his head and like throw his words at you. I like it. As I place. It's entertaining. Fade into a shot of all the books Zola writes after the warning, lining up one by one. And we have all these titles. It's like they're on a conveyor belt, and one yes. is just standing up, and then the next one will come down the line, and then yeah. the next one will come down the line. So Jack will give them to you in English, and I will give them to you in French. The first one is Piping Hot. Pobouille. Next is Ladies' Paradise. Au bonheur des dames. Joy of Life. La joie de vivre. His Masterpiece. L'oeuvre. The soil. La terre. The dream. Le rêve. Human beast. La bête humaine. Money. L'argent. Dr. Pascal. Le docteur Pascal. Discussions with students. That I didn't find. <gasps> but I will be discussion avec les étudiants. The secret book. And lords, is that how you pronounce the last one? Lourde. Lourdes. Which is a, a religious uh, religious place in France. It's supposed to be a, a place where uh, miracles happen. You go down in the cave and there's some holy water. Something, something, fountain of youth, something, something, magic water. Yes. Yep. Then we join Zola dining in his house with his wife and Paul. Fat, happy, and rich, surrounded by opulence. This is... He, some non-specific amount of time has passed, I mean, enough time for him to publish, like, seven books, so yeah. he is no longer the starving artist. He is well established in his career at this point, and successful and joyous. We d so we don't know how much time has passed, however, in doing research for the, the podcast, this would have been around, uh, in or around 1886. 1886. For a very specific reason, but I, I'll mention that reason after you're done describing the scene. He is I don't want to spoil it. far past his starving artist days yes. at this point. Lo and you, you, can see, you can see that he's not a, a starving artist mm. uh, anymore because he's getting yeah, visibly fatter. Fatter, and the walls are almost entirely covered by fine china in this room. There's a chandelier. There, there is a feast yes. on this table. And there's a fireplace and everything is, you know, rich and fancy and ornate. Yeah. He's got the the belly that he was reproaching Monsieur Larue to have yes. uh, before. Zola says, it's good to see Paul again. It's just like old times. Zola and Paul get up from the table. Uh, first, his wife leaves because she wants to show Paul some pearls that were purchased for her in Italy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Zola and Paul don't even wait for her to return before they get up and wander to other parts of the house. So Zola can give Paul a tour of all the cool, expensive art he's collected. In the middle of showing him a particularly sweet-ass vase, uh, Zola notices that Paul isn't paying attention and asks him to have a seat. Paul declines, saying that this is goodbye. Goodbye? Yes, Paul is leaving Paris. He tells Zola that they live in different worlds now, and that artists should remain poor, otherwise their talent, like their stomachs, 
grows fat. Zola asks him to reconsider because he needs someone to remind him of the old, struggling, carefree days. You can never go back to it, says Paul, and I never left it. He turns to leave, and Zola calls out, Paul, will you write? No, but I'll remember. Paul walks slowly away, and Zola leans against the fireplace in contemplation. His wife enters, and they discuss Paul's comments on Zola's fame. He thinks I'm too famous, and too fat. Well, so what if I am? I've fought my battles, now I want calm, rest. We transition to the office of Count Esther Housie at that point. Oh, hold on, hold on. So what I found out was that uh, Zola and Cezanne had been friends since they were children, and but that they had a falling out because Zola created a fictionalized version of Cezanne in one of his books and uh, the masterpiece and he created an artist and uh, like sort of very primitive and judgy uh, version of what it's like to be a, a bohemian pa uh, painter, a bohemian artist and apparently Cezanne took offense at uh, the character that was clearly based on him and that's why uh, they had a falling out, and the the masterpiece was published in eighteen eighty six. So that's why Ob <laughs> objected to be uh, being used as a character. Yeah, objected to be to being used as a character, but also to being used as a what he must have seen as a a caricature a, a caricature of himself. Yes, an unflattering yeah. depiction of a character. Yeah, Zola is a sellout. That's what, essentially what he says. Like at the beginning of the the movie, when they're in that little bedroom, he talks about the hypocrisy of the all the books that they have, and he mentions hypocrisy again in that scene. Well, the subject matter of most of Zola's books, having never read any of them myself, but having <laughs> the you know most curious knowledge of this is that. Uh, he mainly writes about like the lower class and the struggles of you know like prostitutes and the homeless, right? Yeah, and then but, here uh, he is living in a mansion. Exactly, and the by doing so, he made a he made an immense amount of of money, and clearly, you just while Zola became famous and rich, Cezanne was never in that in that case. Like he was mostly recognized posthumously. Yeah, like he said, so. you can never go back, and I never left. Yeah. Don't know how it was in real life, but in the scene, you definitely get a feeling like there's some envy there. At least I felt. Envy, yes, but envy also... And some slight resentment about you know, Zola became successful and he didn't. Yes. And then he's just framing it as, you know, oh, well, you're not an artist anymore. You know, you also... He has that way about him that's a very, uh, to me, a very French way, and that's always an elegant eloquent insult in French which is like you've lost your ways and you you've forgotten where you come from yeah you've changed you've changed exactly that's yep. the mostly yeah you for you've forgotten where you come from you've you're higher up uh, in the hierarchy of society and and that's seen as a bad thing Paul stares dead into Zola's eyes and says you are no longer Jenny from the block That is not a reference I ever thought I would hear out of your mouth. <laughs> Transition to the office of Count Esterhousie, who is writing a letter at his desk. He seals the letter in an envelope 
and takes it to the Imperial German Embassy, where he tries to deliver it to the resident military attaché, but is told that His Excellency is in Berlin, so he hands the letter to the doorman who places it in a cubby, where it is almost immediately removed by a shadowy hand. The doorman places it in the cubby, turns off the lights, walks away, the camera zooms into the cubby, and a shadowy hand enters into the frame and takes the letter out of the cubby. The next day at the headquarters of the French general staff, the letter is presented to uh, Major Henry and Colonel Picard, the latter of which grabs the letter out of uh, Henry's hand because Henry opens it and starts to read it and then Picard like grabs it out of his hand and says the commandant must be told. They then take it to the commandant. The commandant, commandant says that it must be examined by the chief of intelligence. The chief of intelligence proclaims the war minister must be informed. It's as this slightly comical uh, series of events where it comes to the first general and he goes, oh, the next person out the food chain must see this. And then they take it to the next chain and he goes, oh, the, the, the next person must see this. Like, every person they bring it to just goes, oh, my boss needs to know about this. And they just go up Until the Until we make it to the, the top of the food chain. We make it to the war minister himself. The war minister reads the letter, which turns out to be information on troop movements and technical specifications on artillery guns and such like that. You know, the the bland logistical details that uh, actually make up the content of military secrets. Yeah. Uh, people think military secrets are these sexy things about aliens and uh, super weapons. And really, it's just like this gun barrel is seven inches long and can rotate this many degrees. This letter was written by a traitor, and the traitor must be one of the general staff, because only someone of that rank would have access to that information. The group then examines a roster of officers. They just take a book out of a desk that has all the names of, uh, of, all, the officers of all the officers, and they just start going down the list. Who could it be? One of the group says he's been wondering about Esther Housie since he's a foreigner, but he's immediately cleared, and by cleared I mean the war minister just goes, no. Because his father was a general, and he's an infantry officer, and they suspect the letter was written by a gunner officer. Then they come... They a- never explain why, really. They think it's a gunner officer? Yeah. I would assume because the, the details in there are about guns and things mm-hmm. that a gunnery officer would know. But people at that level have access to all the information, so that's, mm-hmm. that's a dumb reason to, to write off Esther Housie. Then they come across the name Alfred Dreyfus, whose religion is listed as Jew, question mark. And uh, as you pointed out earlier, this is the only time we see Jew in the entire movie. But uh, yeah, and uh, the issue that people had years later after the movie came out was that it's written on the page, but it's never said uh, out loud. Yep. And for ref- quick reference here again, in French we say Alfred Dreyfus. And uh, here in English we say Dreyfus. Dreyfus, goddammit. That's our man, says the war minister. Based on what? Uh, he's Jewish. Yeah, he's Jewish. <laughs> Question mark. Yep. A message is sent to Dreyfus to report first thing Monday morning. We then join Dreyfus in his home where he's playing toy soldiers with his son while his wife sits at the piano uh, providing sound effects. They have like them all lined up in regiments and then... The boy's like, all right, mom, get ready. And then uh, she provides like a, a, f- a falling noise as they topple over like dominoes. Yeah. It's fun. A messenger arrives with the orders to report on Monday in civilian dress. 
His wife finds that unusual, but Dreyfus brushes it off as a routine inspection, not worried about it at all. But even a routine inspection, you would have to come in uniform, right? To inspect that your your uniform is sits right on your on your body. Every every inspection I ever had in the military, given that this is the American military, and like what a hundred years, yeah. 90, 80 years yeah. after this movie takes place. Yes, every inspection I ever went through in the military was in dress uniform, yeah. never in civilian clothes. Dreyfus reports on Monday as ordered and is shown into a room where Major Dort is writing a letter with a bandaged hand. He's At first he enters into like a lobby area and then the person he uh, announces himself to goes into the, the back chamber where all the generals are. He informs them that Dreyfus is here and like everybody scrambles to get yeah. into position because they've, yeah. they've set this up already. They have a plan. They have a plan. Major Henry just hides behind the curtains in the room like it's a, an episode of fucking Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, they put a, a fake bandage on Dort's hand because this is all a ruse. Yes. And they're all like, oh, places, places, everyone. And they all... Yeah, they're all in a kerfuffle and scramble to to get where they need to be. So Dort is sitting there at his desk when Dreyfus is brought into the back room writing a letter with his bandaged hand. Uh, Dreyfus is there to report to the Commandant, but Dort informs him that the Commandant is busy. And would Dreyfus help him write this letter since his hand is injured? Dreyfus happily complies, and the Major begins to dictate the letter while getting increasingly aggressive until finally grabbing Dreyfus's shoulder and exclaiming that he's under arrest. This entire time, he's... He's playing his role so poorly because he's immediately suspicious and aggressive mm. towards Dreyfus. Uh, Dreyfus is just sitting there happily writing a letter and he's like, well, why is your hand shaking, Dreyfus? And Dreyfus is like, it's it's not. Why are you being weird? <laughs> and he just, he, he dictates to him and Dreyfus is writing slowly. He's like writing with a quill pen that you have to like yeah. dip in ink. Yeah. And then he's going along. What's the last word? Yeah, what's the last word? What What did I tell you to write down? He's like... Immediately arousing suspicion by being such a, an aggressive asshole about this, but he's excited about, you know, the getting to play the interrogator, so yeah. grabs him and says he's under arrest after he writes a certain word. Uh, the other generals charge in and grab Dreyfus, who is appalled by the accusations. What is going on? This is an insult. How dare you? He is told that his handwriting has betrayed him, and one of the generals says he will give Dreyfus the usual alternative mm. and places a revolver on the desk and then goes to wait by the door. So if you want to just kill yourself, I'll just go over here and stand by the door and avert my eyes. Jesus Christ. I was, I did not expect that, honestly. Yeah, that was shocking. Also, giving a man you suspect is a traitor a loaded gun, maybe not the best strategic yeah because what if he decides not to kill himself but kills you instead yeah that's what i was thinking and everybody else left the room it was just him and that other officer pick up the gun bang bang get out of there or not even have to shoot the the gen uh the officer himself i'm pretty sure there was a window in that room yes. so he could have just shot out the window and escaped yeah poor planning at every level dreyfus of course isn't going to make it uh that easy for them and refuses the gun Back at Dreyfus's home, his son is playing soldier. He's got like a little plastic armor and a sword on uh, when there's a knock at the door. He assumes it's his father returning, but it is actually officers come to ransack the house looking for evidence of Dreyfus's treason. Uh, his wife, uh, Alexandrine? No, Alexandrine is, that is uh, Zola's That's Zola's wife. wife. His wife is uh, Lucy. 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 
His wife, Lucy, is informed of the charges and doesn't believe them for a second. That's another thing I appreciated. She does not... As soon as she hears these charges, she's like, no, this is bullshit. Yeah, she knows that he's innocent. Yep. Her husband has served his country for 20 years. This is absurd. How dare you, she says. I like that, you you know, for a woman at this time of the year, that she's standing her ground. Yeah, she is uh, overflowing with righteous indignation and shows it. Uh, the officers begin their search, and we fade into a newspaper boy holding a paper with a headline about Dreyfus's trial and repeatedly shouting, Dreyfus found guilty! Zola and his wife ride by the boy shouting on bicycles, and Zola comments that the whole country is in an uproar about this Dreyfus thing. The two stop at an open-air table, packed with underwater bugs, uh, in layman's terms, lobsters, Langoustine, they're a little bit bigger than lobsters. They're just, oh, they're a different kind of, they're yeah. super lobsters. Oh boy, yeah. even better. They're just sitting out on a table. Hold on, I, I'm i not sure what the word is for for that in in English, so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to look it up. And they are disgusting. Lobsters are disgusting. They're just. No, they're so good. They made, I'm not arguing the taste here. I am saying visually they are they are nightmare horror terrors and I hate them. And they're just sitting out all there's like three or four levels of them all just stacked on top of each other these just like giant bug carcasses it's gross. Okay, the Collins dictionary calls them uh, large prawn small lobster but what the ones we see in the movie here are way larger than uh, normal size lobster. And, anyway, in French, they're called langoustine. Yeah, and Zola's just picking them up and, like, stroking them and flopping them around. So you see yeah. all their gross legs and stuff. Ugh. They're delicious. I don't care. They look like nightmares. <laughs> uh, some old friends of Zola then pull up in a carriage, uh, and Zola makes them smell his bug. <laughs> he has one of the... the the prawns in his hand he's just waving it in the faces of everyone in the carriage like stop it stop it i had to turn away lest i vomit Mm. Uh, i will find some and i will make some for us uh, you'll have to shove it in my mouth i will uh this is his friend uh, anatole 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 france who becomes a recurring character after this point smell my bug says zola and everyone smells his bug and appreciates it while a column of people march by shouting for Dreyfus to be killed and holding signs to that effect. They have like this giant picket sign where it's like prison bars and uh, a caricature of Dreyfus behind them. We then move to the courtyard in front of the general officer's headquarters where Dreyfus is being publicly stripped of his rank. An iron fence surrounds the courtyard and on the outside of the fence a large crowd has gathered to jeer at Dreyfus. It's an iron fence but there's plenty of gaps in between the bars so you can see clearly what's happening inside the courtyard. The charges and verdict are read out as Dreyfus stands at attention in full military dress. And after he swears again that he is innocent, I am innocent! One of the generals uh, steps forward and rips all the ornamentation off his uniform. They, like, grab his hat off his head and, like, rip the, the ornamentation off of it. And then they, like, there's... It's made out of, like, little cord or... Yeah, corded thread stuff on the sleeves that he grabs and, like, jerks off and has to, you know, break the thread to get it off. And then he unties his sword from his hip, uh, unsheathes the sword, and breaks the sword over his knee. It's all very dramatic. 
Dreyfus then calls upon the assembled reporters to tell the world he's innocent, while Anatole watches sadly from the front of the crowd. He, he cuts back to his face. He's in the very front, so he's like standing right by the bars, and he's got a, a concerned expression on his face yeah. the entire time. He is not... He's not jumping on the, the bandwagon of hate that the public has yeah. freely and readily uh, going along with. Back in Zola's home, Anatole relates what happened, saying that all Dreyfus lacked was a crown of thorns. Zola is unconvinced and says he was found guilty and so must be a traitor. Zola, at this point, just suddenly believes that, <laughs> that the government tells the truth and that it's all good, and why would they lie? Also... Uh, Zola must have some sort of cold in the scene because he's like wrapped in a blanket in a chair and he has his feet in some water. In some hot water. Yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, my aching head. He has also visibly aged already at that point in the movie. Yeah, he's got a, a fuller beard and some gray in his hair. Yeah. And is has gotten more rotund. Anatole shoves a newspaper in Zola's face and asks if the picture on the front is the face of a traitor. Zola doesn't care and just wants to be left alone. Then we return to Dreyfus, who is in his cell. An officer enters and informs him that he has a visitor, and he's taken out before he can get his glasses. He, like, you have a visitor, and Dreyfus just jumps up and starts to walk out the door and go, oh, wait, my glasses, but then the officer is pushing him out. <laughs> my glasses! I can't see without my glasses! <laughs> but he's just pushed out. The visitor is his wife, and she moves to embrace him, but is held back by an officer. No contact allowed. They're just, they're being dicks in every possible way they can be dicks. Can't we be alone, she asks. Orders are orders, is the gruff reply. She asks if he has any idea who the actual traitor is. He doesn't. But he is determined to survive whatever they put him through so that one day he can prove his innocence. His wife promises to devote her life to freeing him, and he asks how the children are doing. Has she told them what's happened? She says that she told them he's just away on duty. A bell rings, signaling the end of the visit, and they've only been talking for like... Less than two minutes. Two minutes, yeah, and then ring, and the guard, time's up! And his wife begs the guard to let uh, her touch him just once. The guards are unmoved. Dreyfus is taken into a hallway outside the visitation room and handed a bundle of his belongings for transport. Where to, he asks, but is met only with silence. This scene... This was a good scene between him and his wife. Very appropriately emotional without being overly dramatic, like a lot of scenes we've seen in these movies. Yeah, even though it could very easily turn overly dramatic. Like we have a lot of a lot of close ups of Lucy and you kind of expect her to be to be more dramatic in the scene, but her uh, the amount of feelings that she emotes is just pretty appropriate and, and not comical not a caricature of what emotions look like it was really really well shot and really well done yeah and dreyfus himself is very understated he just seems completely just beaten down at this point yeah when the guard refuses to let her uh give him a hug at the end she starts to to protest more and uh, he implores her to not make this any more difficult than it already is yes and you can feel the genuine affection when he asks about the children and the fact that that's what's keeping him going still. That's one thing I wanted to say earlier, too. Like, when we have that scene in their house when he gets the letter, uh, you know, for him to report uh, Monday morning, we, they don't have a whole lot of on-screen time together. They don't have a, a whole lot of scenes 
uh, with the family and the whole family either or anything, but I had the same feeling about them that I had with the couple in Cavalcade. Like, they look like a gen- these actors on screen together look like a genuine couple. They look like a genuine representation of what a loving, you know, long-term partnership looks like. Yeah. What being too uh, committed to your family actually is. Because yeah. if he if he was just going through all this himself, it probably would have broken him. But he just tells her in this scene that I will survive for the children's sake. Yeah. It's not about just him anymore. Yeah, it's, it's very genuine and, and touching. I like this scene a lot. Yeah, that's heartwarming. And I think... I didn't notice this until my rewatch, but... I think this is where she begins to wear black. Yeah. And she wears black through the entire rest of the movie. She always appears it because she's in mourning. Yes. For this situation. Yeah. Uh, a good, yeah, a good little detail that I didn't even notice until going through again for the synopsis. But he asks where to and is met with silence. And then we transition to a shot of a world map that zooms into a small landmass off the north coast of South America called Devil's Island. And I just recently read uh, the novel Papillion, Mm -hmm. and part of the novel Papillion takes place on Devil's Island, too. The author claimed to have been imprisoned there. If my memory is correct, I believe there is even a passage in that novel about him, like, sitting on the same bench that Dreyfus sat on and, like, wondering what Dreyfus would have thought. But then uh, doing further research on it for this podcast, it turns out that he was probably bullshitting about even being there in the first place. Although it was a common, like, sort of deportation and uh, place for uh, people that the government wanted to sort of get rid of. It was for political prisoners, yes. right? Yep. The map then becomes the real Devil's Island, and we see a lonely shack sitting on a barren cliffside overlooking the ocean. This It's a tiny little building that couldn't even be more than, like, 15 feet yeah. on the inside of it and this is where uh, Dreyfus is being imprisoned and it just yeah on a barren rocky outcrop like it's at the end of the world numbers then appear in the center of the screen moving away from the viewer 1895 1896 1897 and as the years progress uh, a fence is built up mm-hmm. around the little shack and also uh, there's more and more soldiers yes also patrolling around, around. Like, he's going to try to escape, and it, and it wouldn't take more than, like, three people to, and, uh, to catch him. Yeah, Dreyfus himself is not a very large man. He's yeah. very, like, mousy in appearance. He's got a very, like, thin mustache. He's very lean. Yeah, very lean, slight man. Yeah, he, and especially in these conditions, like, being uh, basically starved, he would not put up any sort of struggle. And also, even if he broke away from the guards, where would he go? He's on a, a cliff by the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about appearances. Dreyfus, looking like a maddened survivor of a shipwreck, yeah, at this point, like, his hair is wild and his clothes are in rags, clutches at the bars and screams over and over again that he's innocent. The only reply is the sound of the waves. Back in the headquarters of General Staff, Colonel Picard is talking to the Chief of Staff, telling him that he was never fully convinced of Dreyfus's guilt, and so he kept up the investigation, which has finally uncovered the real traitor, Count Esther Halsey. The chief of staff tells Picard that he's overstepped his duty, that Dreyfus is guilty, and that no more should be said lest the general staff be at the mercy of every scandal paper in France. Mm. 
Bakar leaves, and the chief of staff talks to one of his assistants about finding Bakar a new post. Perhaps in one of our African desert stations. Yeah. Something also needs to be done about Esther Housie, he says, which leads to Esther Housie being found innocent of all charges via court-martial in the very next scene. As his fellow officers congratulate him and shake his hand, the chief of staff remarks to his assistant that he hopes this will finally put a stop to Dreyfus's wife and her meddling. Not even close. Not even close. And this this is our first taste of the lengths that the general staff is willing to go to yeah. cover this whole thing up. Because they know. They know from the start that they, they've screwed up. And this whole thing just becomes about them compounding their error by making it even more of a mess by covering up their cover-up and just digging the hole ever deeper and refusing to admit any sort of wrongdoing whatsoever and it's wild when all they had to do could have they could have given esther hazy the the same treatment like they could have offered him the gun but but he's not Jewish. No, he's and, not Jewish, and is probably. But he's a foreigner. He they describe him at the beginning as a foreigner. So. Oh, there's levels of bigotry. You I know. know. Yeah, and we can't uh, we can't embarrass ourselves, so we'll uh, embarrass ourselves further. It's their level of denial and corruption is true to life, I'm sure, but also just man, it's gross. We rejoin Zola in his study, reading a letter about his acceptance into the French Academy. Yay. At last. L'Académie Française. To join, uh, join the ranks of the immortals of France. It's like one of the highest literary recognitions there is. Yes, he is officially being recognized as a board-certified smarty pants. <laughs> oh, the joy. His butler enters while he's reading the letter, and tells him that Madame Dreyfus is waiting to see him, and Zola calls him a blockhead for letting her know that he was home. He gets real mad about this. He jumps up like, You idiot! Why did you let her know I was here? He does not want to be bothered with any of this. It's too late for excuses, though, so she's allowed in and proceeds to plead with Zola for help in her effort to prove her husband's innocence. She has with her letters sent from the assistant chief of staff and Picard that prove the general staff is aware of Dreyfus's innocence and actively working to cover it up. Zola protests that the matter is settled, and he has more books to write anyway, though he does show a bit of interest when he learns that Picard has been arrested. He, like, everything she says, he's just like, well, this, they've, are, the court martial is already done. And yeah, we have yeah. to deal in fact, madame, not in, not in emotion. And uh, I've, I've had my field, and what can even I do anyway? I'm just a private citizen. Zola is... He's like a cat on a leash being dragged down a sidewalk. He yeah. he hates all of it and just, just, no, 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 leave me alone. Ultimately, he tells her there's nothing to be done and sends her away. But she does not take the letters with her. She leaves them behind. When Zola sees that she left the letters behind, he rushes out after her, but it is too late. He returns to his study, sits in his plush chair, and picks up the letter of acceptance to the academy. And I believe this is the first time uh, that we ever see what becomes a, a common trick where we get a shot of like some sort of writing and then it dims most of the letter out and highlights the important passage, mm-hmm. which is his acceptance into the Academy. Yeah. I believe that's the first time we've ever seen that visual trick I think so. used in any of these movies. Yeah. 
I like seeing the the things that become common, their first usages as we move through the years. The techniques are getting more sophisticated. He takes out his letter. It zooms in on the passage where it says he's accepted to the academy. He looks at it for a few seconds, sighs, tears it up, and begins to look at the letters uh, that Dreyfus's wife left behind. It's like, God damn it, I've been pulled into this. Fine. I think in that moment, there's also a reminder of Paul Cezanne. He might be looking at a, a painting or something, or the, the vase that he was trying to show Cezanne, and there's, to me, like the the, the voice of Cezanne in his head saying, don't don't be a hypocrite, don't mm. be a hypocrite. Just, yeah. you, you, you've defended lower class people your entire life. You've shown the, their struggles. You've exposed the, the uh, truth of what it is like to be to live in France at this time. Just don't be a hypocrite right now. Yeah, this is the moment Zola resigns himself to his fate. Before that, I was surprised at how vehemently apathetic he was to this whole thing. Yeah. Until this point where, like, he's just like, man, everybody just will not shut the hell up about this, and I'm tired of hearing about it, and must we uh, constantly be reminded of this uh, interminable affair? Yeah. And then he's just, no, 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 no. Fine. <laughs> and he starts reading the letters. Next, we find ourselves in the editorial office of a newspaper. Of uh, Georges Clemenceau, who was also a, a writer and, and publisher. Zola has called together a group of people, incl including Lucy and Anatole, none of whom know why they were called. We uh, we come in and everybody's like, do you know why we were called here? What? What's going on? Huh? Huh? What? Huh? Zola enters, and when questioned about what he intends to do at this meeting, he replies, explode a bomb. He then reads a letter to the president that he intends to publish in the paper. And he reads, like, the entire thing, but I will just read the, the first excerpt here. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a short excerpt, because when you look at the entire thing, it's the whole, the, I have the, the picture of the original uh, publication of the, the letter on the front page of a newspaper, and it's six, six columns and it, it's, it's super long. Of uh, Bible-sized font. Yes. Uh, yeah, font this, uh, that you need a magnifying glass to read. <laughs> All right, it begins out this way. Mr. President of the Republic, permit me to tell you that your record without blame so far is threatened with a most shameful blot, this abominable Dreyfus affair. And he goes on reading his proposed letter, and as he goes on, he increases in volume and gesticulation and... Even people outside the, the room he's in begin to gather around to listen to his speech. After the speech concludes, we move to a scene of papers being printed with the famous headline, Jacques Hughes! And then to the general staff reading the paper, although it is not Jacques, Jacques Hughes. And they say, I accuse, yep. which I was extremely disappointed at this one because... It has so much more of a ring to it when you say j'accuse, and it's so much more forceful than I accuse. Yeah, it has a lot more oomph to it. Yes. J'accuse is like a, a bullet coming out of a gun. Yeah, the j at the beginning. Yeah. Like, yes. And the rising, yeah, j'accuse. And I don't understand why they didn't keep it, because so many people know it throughout the world. You, when I first met you, you knew the, uh, you knew the, those words, and it just, it, I don't know, it, it's a piece of cultural and historical, 
I don't know. I don't know what a, what the what a good word is here, but it, it's a, a cultural and historical common memory, I guess, or artifact. common knowledge artifact. Yep. So I was disappointed that they didn't keep the jacuzzi trivia piece of cultural trivia. <laughs> yeah, it gets referenced twice in the 1966 Adam West Batman TV show. <gasps> yeah. By the 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 penguin yes. in that show. <laughs> A multiple uh, on two separate occasions, I believe uh, he says in the immortal words of Emile Zola, Jacques, <laughs> and then he points with his umbrella. Ah, <laughs> uh, the penguin. Yep. <laughs> but here it is. I accuse of a much more limp <laughs> statement. Yeah. Then we are with the general staff as they read the paper and agree that if they overlook overlook this attack on their reputation, it their reputation will be damaged. Then there are scenes of the unrest caused by the paper with windows uh, being smashed at the newspaper office and effigies of Zola and Dreyfus being burned in the streets. And Zola's books being burned in the streets. Yep, Imagine, like, Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, dumped off of uh, bookshelves and thrown into piles and burned. People are pissed yes. about this. Uh, Zola himself is witness to one of the burnings of the effigies until a man in the mob recognizes him, and he is forced to flee to safety. It's him! Get him! Yeah. And then he just jumps in a carriage. And, it's like a mob running behind yeah, him. And drives away. He makes it back to his mansion, but his relief is short-lived. He has received a summons to court where he is to be put on trial for defaming the members of the Esterhazy court-martial. So here's some context to show you how quickly this went down. Because the letter was published on the front page of a newspaper called L'Aurore. On Thursday, January 13th, 1898, Zola was charged with a criminal libel and his trial began on February 7th, 1898. Yeah, the, uh, the gears of uh, justice move a little faster when the people at the top want them to move. Yes. Yeah. And not even a month, not even a month, uh, and he's been charged and, and his trial begins. <laughs> Turn this the other way around with, like, a civilian trying to sue the military. Yeah. And that would take pff, seven months minimum to get to court. <laughs> seven months? I would count years before it started. And then the trial ended uh, in that same month, February 23rd, mm. 1898. Yeah, when you piss off the people in charge, they'll get you and they'll get you quick. Yep. This is the part where we enter into the trial, and rather than uh, write it down as I usually do for the synopsis, we're just going to talk about it openly, because as compelling as it is to watch in the moment... It's very repetitive. Very repetitive when actually written out. Yes. So, the trial proceeds in this pattern of... Well, first of all, the judge... There's a whole panel of judges. Yes, there's like five judges. Uh, and they have the the goofiest outfits. Mm. We need to mention before this whole thing uh, gets going. They have like they're in like white uh, big robes. With, they have white hats. With goofy hats, because for some goddamn reason, everyone in a high position of authority, not just in France but throughout all of human history, they have to have some sort of stupid hat. <laughs> like it's a requirement. I don't, every religious leader, every pope, every king, every judge, they always have to have the stupidest fucking hats imaginable. It shows your status. I think, 
I really and truly believe that it's some sort of, like, domination thing oh, about yeah. they know how stupid their hat is, but part of the their authority is that you can't point out how dumb their outfits are. And also, I know it's, it sounds basic or anything, but when they're standing next to someone else who uh, might be just the same height as them or shorter or anything, the hat stands out because it makes them taller. Yeah. It's just any time I see any sort of, of king or judge or, like, royal procession or anything, I am, my entire life, always just flabbergasted by, like, how stupid these outfits look and how, <laughs> uh, it's like, that that's their power, right? You're, yeah. you're just not allowed to tell them. You're not allowed to tell them how dumb they look. You've, you've got to play along mm-hmm. with their stupid game because they're the one in charge. <laughs> Baffling. So it starts with the with the judges. The and judges, the, the head judge. yeah, the judges saying that the Dreyfus affair is a closed case, mm-hmm. and so they're not allowed to talk about the Dreyfus affair yeah. in this trial that is entirely about the Dreyfus affair. Which is what the what uh, Zola's lawyer says. Like, if you can't mention, you can't have uh, a case against Zola without mentioning the the case against uh, Dreyfus because they're both connected. Yeah, and the judges give no shits. This entire thing yeah. is the most transparently corrupt oh, yeah. farce yeah. I have ever seen because they don't allow any of the witnesses to talk about... The judges just continually shift the goalpost. Yes. Like, Zola's lawyer is literally not allowed to gain any sort of traction because any attempt he makes... The judgment is always, you're not allowed to talk about this. You're not allowed to ask about this. He had the, the judge will, every time Zola's uh, lawyer asks the question, he's like, you can't ask this question. Yes, o- overruled, overruled. You're not allowed. Yeah, they're... <sighs> the, the lawyer has to be extremely careful and reword questions to be able to even get one the, out. This is not pertinent to the trial when it very obviously is. Yes. Uh, the judges are so clearly biased in favor of the military... That the like high-ranking officers of the military just interrupt the proceedings yeah. whenever they don't like something. They just like call a full like call a timeout and just like <laughs> foul yeah foul yeah timeout. I'm going to talk now, which is not. I'm not a lawyer, but also that's not how court proceeding works. You can't just call a timeout from the sidelines and walk up out of the crowd and be like, "Here's what I have." To- Here's what I think about what's going on. <laughs> yeah, you're also you're not a high-ranking officer in the French military, so yeah, we I'm, don't know. I'm not one of those uh, people that gets to make the rules. But at some point, even Dreyfus's wife is called as a witness, and she gets to the stand, and she's not even allowed to say she, one word. Yeah, she doesn't say anything because uh, the... just because her name is Dreyfus, and and that's it. She, she's not allowed to be a witness. Well, every question that the lawyer tries to pose to her, the the judge intercedes and objects, like that's not relevant. That's not relevant. You're not Can't allowed. You're not allowed to talk about that. You're not allowed. And yeah, and then the judge dismisses her from the stand where she has. She doesn't even open her mouth. Yeah, it is so transparently corrupt. It's it's wild. Which is also, you know, wild to me. I understand like, how a deeply rooted patriotism can be. But, like, how doesn't anybody... There's a lot of officers. There's a lot of army people in that courtroom. Like, how doesn't anybody object to this? Because, it, like you said, just 
blatant, blatant. They're not. Yeah, there. There's no attempt to hide yeah. how corrupt this is. Yeah. And good on Zola's lawyer for constantly pushing back on this. Like every time he's denied, he always pushes back and be and just calls them out. Like this is blatantly transparent and like like you're not allowed. You're not allowing me to do my job. I am not allowed to question these exalted beings. He yes. says. And he's right. And there's, at one point, they make mention of a mysterious document Mm -hmm. that proves that Dreyfus is guilty, but, oh, they can't reveal the document in court for matters of national security. Yeah. They can't produce the document. There's also this huge crowd of officers in the courtroom this entire time, because this is a huge courtroom with, like, stadium seating almost. Yeah. And there's just a, a cheering squadron for the army there that anytime... Zola or Zola tries to speak. They go, boo, down with Zola. And then, hooray, hooray for the army. And they'll stand up and cheer. And then one time when they cheer, they go, hooray for the army. And there's one person sitting and he adds after the cheer, but not for the generals. <laughs> and then he's immediately grabbed and dragged out of the courtroom. Like, bef- as soon as the words are out of his mouth, he just they just swoop down on him and grab him out of his seat and drag yeah. him away. <laughs> And then there's one point during the trial that they, like, signal to the crowd outside to start causing a ruckus to show support for the army. Like, they will use every dirty, underhanded trick that they can. There is no level of corruption they will not sink to. Yes. And then Esther Housie has to come out at one point, and it shows him in the back, uh, in the room, like, immediately before the courtroom, like, the waiting room, and Mm -hmm. he's in there with his other officers, and he's like, I don't want to go out there, I don't want to go out there, and then they go, you have to, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, don't say anything. Don't say anything, you don't have a gun on you, do you? (laughs) They check that he doesn't have a gun on him. And then, at one point when Zola's lawyer is being admonished and being told that he can't talk about what he wants to talk about, he says, I'll say what I have to say even if it takes six months. And then the judge's reply is just to immediately adjourn the court. And they just all, as soon as he said it, he's like, court's adjourned. And then in sync, all the judges get up, turn around, and just walk away. It's infuriating. It was infuriating to watch. It's infuriating to watch these people because it's like the grown-up equivalent of the kid on a playground who's playing tag and just standing there and be like, I have a force field. You can't touch me. You're like, but all this mountain of evidence, force field. But his wife, force field. But the clear corruption, force field. Like, they just... There's no elegance or strategy to what they're doing. It's just the dumbest, just like, you're not allowed to talk about this. Okay, if there's there's nothing to be uncovered, why all this... Why all this barring and censoring of talk? It's so apparent to everyone involved what's going on. I, I question, like, why why do they even go through all this farce at this point? Yeah, because at this point, the court has revealed itself. The government has revealed its corruption. It's like, like, who is this puppet show for? I mean, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It might. I don't know if it was in real life, but it might have been, like, a, a closed courtroom where maybe reporters weren't allowed to be in well that's even even more of a like why are they going through this if no one's there to observe it it, they should just why are they wasting all of their time if there's no if there are no reporters then there's nobody to report to the public 
And then uh, at another point during a recess, Zola comes out and he's advised to take a side exit, Mm -hmm. but uh, chooses to leave how everyone else leaves and has to be escorted through the crowd. And uh, there's people gathered around the fence observing. And uh, most of them are down with Zola, down with Zola. And then one guy at the front of the fence, I believe it's the same guy, who said hooray for the army and was dragged away, mm. says hooray for Zola, and then is immediately swarmed by the crowd and they just start <laughs> beating the shit out of him. He says hooray for Zola and then it's like a wave of people just crest over him and he's just swallowed. Oh, yeah, it was the guy who, who said, but not in the generals. Not, yeah. you know. not, not content just to get dragged out, he now has to get the shit beaten out of him. <laughs> And then uh, towards the end, the we get a, a newspaper headline that says, the end of the trial is imminent. And then we get this cool ocean, uh, the shot of this really cool ocean of umbrellas because it's raining on yeah. the day that the trial is decided. And, you know, the crowd is gathered outside and, and every single person has an umbrella. So we get this really noirish looking black and white shot of the rain falling on just, it's just, you can't see a single person. It's just this ocean of umbrellas. Oh, umbrellas. And then... At the end of this farce, Zola asks for permission to address the jury and is given permission. And I have written down a good portion of Zola's final speech, but not the entire thing because, boy, does he just go on. Six minutes. <laughs> yeah. That was the the uh, one take. Zola is at the point in his career where no editor will <laughs> touch what he says. Mm-mm. So I have to step in and, and trim some of the fat off. Here is a good portion of Zola's final speech to the jury. Gentlemen, in the House of Deputies a month ago, to frantic applause, the Prime Minister declared that he had confidence in U-12 citizens, in whose hands he had bestowed the defense of the army. In other words, you were being instructed by order to condemn me, just as, in that other case, the Minister of War dictated the acquittal of Esther Housey. From my struggling youth until today, my principal aim has been to strive for truth. That is why I entered this fight. All my friends have told me that it was insane for a single person to oppose the immense machinery of the law, the glory of the army, and the power of the state. They warned me that my actions would be mercilessly crushed, that I would be destroyed. But what does it matter if an individual is shattered, if only justice is resurrected? It has been said that the state summoned me to this court. That is not true. I am here because I wished it. I alone have chosen you as my judges. I alone decided that this abominable affair should see the light so that France might at last know all and voice her opinion. My act has no other object. My person is of no account. I'm satisfied." But my confidence in you was not shared by the state. They did not dare say all about the whole undividable affair and submit it to your verdict. That is no fault of mine. You saw for yourself how my defense was incessantly silenced. Gentlemen, I know you. You are the heart, the intellect of my beloved Paris. Where I was born and which I've studied for 40 years. You will not say like many, What does it matter if an innocent man is undergoing torture on Devil's Island? Perhaps, though, you've been told that by punishing me, you will stop a campaign that is injurious to France. If that is your thought, you are mistaken. 
Have I the look of a hireling, a liar, a traitor? I am only a free writer who has given his life to work and will resume it tomorrow, and I am not here defending myself. Tremendous pressure has been put upon you. Save the army. Save France. I say to you, pick up that challenge. Save the army and save France. But do it by letting truth conquer. A great nation is in danger of forfeiting her honor. Do not take upon yourselves a fault the burden of which you will forever bear in history. And this entire thing is shot from the perspective of the jury, mm-hmm. which I really liked. You are, it is as if you are a member of the jury sitting there in the box with Zola staring directly at you giving the yeah. speech. And he gets closer as the speech goes on. You know, he walks around a lot. And at one point, he's just like leaning on the box like you were almost face to face with him. And it was really a really good acting job from uh, Paul Munich. Is it, he has such good intonation and pause. And the speech doesn't feel, almost doesn't feel rehearsed. No. It feels just like as if he was speaking from the heart, which it was a it was a brilliant, brilliant scene. Yep. Lots of gesticulation to punctuate moving of yes. the finger and the the bombing of the head and yeah, he moves around a lot. Yeah. Yep. Good enunciation, good pauses, yeah. He's a this actor is a very good orator. Yeah. This is the most Zola speaks throughout the entire trial, because the majority of the trial is his lawyer. Yeah. Speaking with Zola, just sitting in front of the desk where the lawyer is, which is he's sitting in a chair with his cane in his hands and like scowling and kind of looking at the ground. And I don't know that he says anything throughout Nothing. the actual trial, but then he gives up and gives this grand speech at the end. When the the speech concludes, we get a, a quick scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, while the trial was going on, we got a scene of, of Dreyfus in his cell being delivered uh, a copy of Paris, which is Zola's mm-hmm. latest novel, and a copy of the works of Shakespeare, mm-hmm. which also included a letter from his wife yes. that was heavily censored. It was redacted, yeah. The, the letter where they just, they blacked out a majority of the words yeah. to the point where it's incomprehensible what she's actually trying to say. Yeah. Just every opportunity they get to shit on this man, they take. He has become the punching bag of an entire nation. It's, it's wild. Oh, the speech concludes, and then we get another quick scene of Dreyfus being shackled to his bed, just a precaution, mm-hmm. the soldier tells him. And he's like skin and bones at this point, and they're still shackling him up as if he's going to do anything. Uh, he reaches under his bed for that copy of Paris that he got, but it's been eaten by ants. Yes. Which, man, if I am if I am in solitary confinement for... He was in there for over a decade, right? No, like the... Like the... Like, um, here... You get 1896, 1897, 1898. Three years. And I believe, yeah, I believe he was uh, released after that. I thought more time had passed after that in the trial. I could have sworn I remember reading somewhere 13 years, but I'm probably just making shit up. Anyway, back in the courtroom, everyone rises to hear the verdict. Guilty. Zola is sentenced to one year imprisonment and a 3,000 franc fine. Zola turns to the cheering crowd and whispers bitterly under his breath, Cannibals. 
fade into Zola's home, where he's being advised by his friends to flee the country. At first, he refuses, saying he'll be denounced by his friends and enemies alike if he does, but then he is told that there are some times where it is more courageous to be cowardly. He replies by asking his wife to pack some warm things because it must be cold in London. I was surprised that he actually chose to go on the run, being unaware of the you know actual historical events. Yeah. I... I agreed with his initial argument of that's just going to give more ammunition to his enemies. And his wife even says it is beneath his character to run away. But then you just kid fans are like, oh, I guess he's actually going. We then see in papers being sold in England uh, headlines about Zola's escape. And he walks by the crier and buys one of them. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't even recognize him. And signs at the paper he published his accusation from advertising new articles from him. Like, read Zola's latest articles here. And it's a, an image of a, a hand holding a torch. Mm -hmm. Truth marches on. Then we see Major Henry paying a visit to Count Esterhousy and informing him that he's been summoned to a meeting with the new war minister. Admit nothing, says Esterhousy. Henry replies, with Zola still writing, the whole world screaming for the truth, and everyone at each other's throats, you can't hold it off much longer. Esther Housie reiterates to admit nothing, Henry leaves, and Esther Housie immediately scrambles to start packing a suitcase. At Henry's meeting, the new war minister demands the truth. That seems to be the actual shift yes. in yeah. things is when the old guard retired and then a new guard came in we don't know the uh, the uh, movie doesn't say why we get a new war minister but we can just get a new one yeah the the new the new higher-ups come in and they uh inherit this mess of the old guard and are not happy about it and they're trying to to get it off their hands and stop being bothered by it also there's there's a shit ton of officers that all participate in the trial, and they're all recurring, but they're all pretty much interchangeable. There's, like, the chief of staff, and there's the, the minister, and then there's uh, Major Henry. They're all mm -hmm. almost indistinguishable from one another. They're, they all have, like, slight variations on how waxed their mustaches are mm -hmm. and if they wear a monocle or not, but the upper echelons of the, the general staff are all, you know, all same all serve the same function are all generally the same character yeah. major henry is one of the officers who does not wear a monocle at henry's meeting with the war minister demanding the truth uh, but the honor of the army henry tries to plead that was a, a common refrain throughout the trial too we cannot for the sake of the honor of the army we cannot and yeah, if these things are brought to light it would bring shame upon france and you know the these individuals hiding behind the the honor and uh, well you know if people knew what we were really doing they'd be ashamed of us then they should be ashamed I, this this argument is so circular and nonsensical i hate it i i hate it and i hate the fact that it works so henry tries to use that tactic again start the honor of the army but the minister cuts him off the minister has heard enough of that nonsense and presents the mysterious document that was mentioned in zola's trial that could never actually be presented in court but the, the minister has managed to actually track it down, and he barks at Henry to read it. Henry slowly mumbles a few lines before violently shouting that he didn't write it, he swears! The minister then tells him that the agent that Henry worked with to forge the letter confessed to everything and gives Henry one less chance to tell the truth. 
the the minister uh, is not having it. He knows the second that Henry walks in that Henry did this. So every time Henry tries to deny it, he just looks at him and goes, you're lying. It's good to finally see one of these people called out on their bullshit. Yeah. Henry finally admits his part in the cover-up and is placed under arrest. He he very slowly lowers his head and says, I wrote it, but I did it for the army. The honor of the army. Three other officers are in the room as well, including the chief of staff, who starts to tell the minister that his excellency is making a mistake before the withering glare of the minister silences him. And the chief of staff uh, just just stops mid-sentence and says, you'll have my resignation in the morning. Thank God. Because he starts in with his bullshit and the minister doesn't reply. He just, like, stares him down. <laughs> and like, are you really trying this on me? Yes. And then the, the chief of staff just kind of sputters out and goes, fine, I'll, I'll, you'll have my papers in the morning. And just walks away. Yeah, it was very much a scene where it's like, I've taken down the weakest link and now all of you gotta go. Yep. So everybody out. Everyone involved in this nonsense out so we can get a, a fresh start with new staff. The next morning, a captain arrives at the jail to check on Major Henry, and the prison guard tells him that he spent all night screaming about the honor of the army. They open the cell door and discover Major Henry's body splayed across the bed. It's suicide by non-specific means. Yeah, we don't know. He's not hanging from anything. No. He's just... I'm... He's just you don't see his face because he's, like, draped across his bed. Yeah. And, yeah, it's just, they enter, you get a quick shot of his body, and like, oh, he killed himself. Okay. He took, what, what do they call it? The usual method. <laughs> in London, Zola is in bed waiting for the day's newspapers to arrive. He's got, like, a cold again, and that was a recurring thing. Like, Paul would tease him about, like, always being aware of drafts and whatnot. Yeah. And being so sensitive to them. So he's got another cold. He's in bed. Like, he's got a blanket completely covering him yes. over his head even. Because he's got some sort of, like, bowl of hot water. And he's trying to, like, enclose himself with the steam. A bowl of hot water? I, I was assuming that he was doing, like, you know, like, nowadays you do, you take some hot water and some Vicks vapor rub and put it in the hot water and yep. inhale. He's opening up his sinuses. Yeah. I thought that's what he was doing. Yep. Sitting there with a cold, draped in towels and his his bucket of hot water. And then uh, a young girl comes in with, like, uh, replacement water for him. Mm -hmm. And he asks where her father is with the day's newspapers. And she says, oh, he'll be along presently. And he goes, the entire world is falling apart. Nations are crumbling. <laughs> but he'll be along presently, he says. Mm. Yeah, Zola is... Zola maintains his, like, uppity, you know, I'm important attitude even after giving in and deciding to fight for for dreyfus he still maintains that i am the the elite how dare you uh inconvenience me presumptuous attitude very haughty man the young girl we get no information on uh how zola knows these people or what relation they are to him looking up the actual facts of this he was staying in a hotel Looks this... like it. Like the little girl looks like she could be like a, a maid or something. Yep. And the father finally comes in with the papers, and then Zola gets to hear all the news about the general staff resigning and that a revision of the Dreyfus case is inevitable. He hears about the generals first, and then he stutters, well, Baba, what? What about Dreyfus?" And then, well, a revision of the case is inevitable. Truth is on the march, he says, and nothing will stop it. Cut to Dreyfus being uh, released, and this is another scene I liked a lot, because mm -hmm. they just come out with a you know an official proclamation releasing him, and then they open the door and allow him to walk up, and 
they open the door with the bars and he still stands there just in the opening with his hands up yeah. as if he's holding on to the bars that aren't there anymore. He walks out and then walks back in yes, the cell. Several times. Yeah. He walks out to the open door and then like quivers a bit and then like he's in a daze almost and then just like stumbles back yeah he's not sure that he's free he uh, you, you definitely see the the hesitation like is this is this real or like even if it is he doesn't know what to do with that yeah like he's just he's been confined to this room for years and so he doesn't he doesn't know anything outside of it anymore yeah. there's almost like a hesitance a fear almost yeah he goes to the door he like quivers goes back into a cell and then he just walks in a little circle in between his cell and the door and then starts to cry they did really well with the uh, the emotions of, of dreyfus around the whole thing and seeing the depth to which it affected him and just how broken he was by it then we're on a train uh, returning to france where zola sits with his wife and friends Esther Housie has confessed to everything because he was paid to do so by a newspaper. Mm -hmm. Got a sweet payday from this. And so no one can deny Zola's right to return anymore. Uh, Zola says the fight is only half won, though. France has given the world liberty. Now it must give it justice. Uh, the very wheels of the train cry out the word, says Zola. Can't you hear it? Justice. 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 <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, calm down, Zola. Cut to Zola in his study, working on his next book, entitled, you guessed it, Justice. His wife comes in and tells him it is after midnight, and he's done enough for now. Zola disagrees, though. There's so much to do and so little time to do it. There's always tomorrow, his wife replies as she places a lump of coal into a small furnace. I was assuming it's a furnace. Furnace? Yeah. Fireplace? So, which is wild, because... Zola seems to have a fireplace in every single room of his house. Yes. So I don't know why they had this additional little furnace thing as well. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. I think there's even rooms that have multiple fireplaces, because in that scene where he's showing Paul around and showing off all the cool vases and stuff, mm -hmm. there is some huge wooden thing, and I think it's a fireplace, mm -hmm. that is one of the most ornately carved and decorated wooden sculptures i've ever seen because yeah. like every inch of this thing and it's huge has these tiny little intricate carvings on it it's wild and i think it's a fireplace i don't know what else it would be because it's so big anyway she puts a, a lump of coal into this small furnace uh, he must get some rest he needs to be up early tomorrow for dreyfus's reinstatement in the army it's funny says zola before the dreyfus affair i thought i was done paul was right i was getting smug complacent. Now I'm alive again. My head is bursting with ideas. His wife kisses the top of his head and leaves. Close up of a smoking pipe on the furnace. Zola rubs his eyes and coughs. Back to the pipe. Zola slowly dips his pen in the inkwell and begins to write, and the camera zooms in on his hand as it comes to a stop. In the same courtyard where he was stripped of his rank years ago, Alfred Dreyfus is promoted to the rank of Commandant and knighted as a member of the Legion of Honor. This is not how it went in real life. No. In real life, there was a second trial of Dreyfus where he was again found guilty. And then after the whole hubbub with Zola's trial and things actually coming to light, Dreyfus was offered a pardon. Yes. 
which means that legally he did the thing, but he's just being excused from the consequences of the thing. They never admitted his innocence, which... They actually... So he was offered a pardon, but then he was completely exonerated by the Supreme Court in 1906. 1906. Yeah. Took them a lot longer than what they're implying here. Yes. Because in this scene, they they give him the medal for the Legion of Honor, and they say that a proclamation is to be posted Mm -hmm. in every city and in every town in France proclaiming his innocence. Yeah. And uh, that is not at all what happened. The ceremony ends, and as Dreyfus receives congratulations, he asks if Zola was able to make it. Cue newspaper boy running up through the crowd. Zola found dead! Zola found dead! We grow from there straight to the funeral, where Anatole is delivering the eulogy. And this is... It was actually taken from his real eulogy. Oh. And the, the funeral is taking place in this some sort of large state building it has it's in the pantheon in the pantheon huge marble airy space Uh, the coffin is draped and completely covered in flowers it's just a a mountain of of wreaths and and flowers and decoration you can't even see the actual coffin itself we should go we should go to the pantheon next time we go to france sure that's beautiful though uh, looking on wikipedia they had photos of his funeral and it, it looked like it took place outside at least the eulogy took place outside. Mm. But there's plenty of other liberties taken yeah. in this movie, so whatever. And here, here is the excerpt of the eulogy he says. Let us not pity him because he suffered and endured. Let us envy him. Let us envy him because his great heart won him the proudest of destinies. He was a moment of the conscious of man. Yeah. And we zoom out to a shot of the crowd... Fade to black, the end. What did you think of the life of Emile Zola? I really enjoyed this movie. I don't think that it's going to uh, last very long, uh, you know, at the top of my list. But uh, because mostly because the story is very uh, simple and there's nothing particularly innovative in the cinematography but i really i was really entertained i really enjoyed uh watching the movie that's about where i'm at i think it was a good palate cleanser from all these the the pacing especially yeah coming off the the three hour long (laughs) uh, incredibly repetitive zigfield biopic yeah just having a a simple, tightly paced yeah. story was refreshing. I did not expect the um, Dreyfus affair and Zola's trial to take so much of the movie. I and at the same time, I appreciate it because before, if you remember, before we watched the the movie, I was telling you, oh, I don't know what a, a biopic of a of a writer is going to look like, like. Are we going to see him, you know, walk around and look for inspiration for his next novel and things like that? So Is I he had, going I to no... stare longingly as leaves <laughs> are tossed about by the wind? So yeah, I didn't know really what to expect for the for this movie and I was happily surprised. Yeah, for a, a movie entitled The Life of Emile Zola, he factors into it a, a shockingly small amount. 
especially towards the you know the the trial and all that like he kind of retreats his it's mostly about other people and how they're they're allowed or not allowed to interact during the the trial like i appreciated the i one character that i really enjoyed was his lawyer because he delivered really a great performance during the trial scenes he had the right amount of indignation and the right amount of anger i don't know how really how to explain but he uh, it really felt like a lawyer not an actor playing a lawyer he always was ready willing and able to inform the judges that this is kangaroo court sir (laughs) yeah and loudly protest yeah it was a good more than good it was a great performance yeah although his square bangs (laughs) did distract me a bit i lost myself in (laughs) those hard right edges yeah on more than one occasion yeah was it what you expected before we watched the movie? Like, what what were your expectations? What did you think was going to be in this movie? Yeah, you know, I wasn't surprised about the Dreyfus affair taking up the majority of the time, since that's you know the Jacques Hughes thing is the what he's most well known for. Yeah. So was not a surprise at all. And other than that, I had no real expectations going into it. I. I was a little bit surprised that it started off with him being so young. I thought we were just going to come in when he was already established. Mm-hmm. And they spend so little time with him being young that you basically do come in when he's already established. They only yeah. do, they, the barest like acknowledgement of it and then, oh, he's a starving artist. And then... <laughs> yeah, within less than 10 minutes, he's a published author. <laughs> he he starved for ten minutes and then feasted for the the rest of the the two hour runtime. Yeah, and just long enough for you to be able to be aware of it. I like that though. I like to seeing the evolution, like we said during the the podcast, seeing the evolution of his manners and his body as well, like how he became progressively bigger and uh, more opulent, I, I guess yeah. would be the, the word. I like that we see uh, the evolution of his like physical appearance too throughout the movie. His physical appearance, the the way they dressed and did makeup and all that on Paul Muni was really, I don't know how to describe it. Accurate? Uh, accurate, yeah. I was uh, looking for pictures of Emile Zola throughout his life and it was really really accurate the way they did his hair and his glasses and all that it was great apart from that yeah I'm not going to remember maybe a, a whole lot about this movie or it, it was good the story was good the the uh, uh, dialogues were great but it, yeah. cinematic cinematographically nothing really innovative there is something Yes, insubstantial about the whole thing. Yeah. Because it's such a clear-cut right and wrong situation mm-hmm. that there's no shades of gray here at all. There, yeah. The general staff are very clearly the bad guys. Yeah. Zola is so clearly on the side of right that there's just nothing to really chew on there. Yeah, it, it was like, I had the same feelings watching this movie as I did when we watched uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. Like, you have a clear villain, you have something to be to be mad about, 
And as the audience, you're all supposed to have the same feelings. Like you're not supposed to side with, with the wrong side, I guess. Yeah, there seems to be a theme in these movies of lofty, high-minded morals that mm-hmm. when you give them more than uh, surface-level thought, they're really insubstantial. And they they all sound nice, but there's no real actual depth or consideration to them. Yeah. It's all... It's, it's Hollywood speeches. Yeah. And, you know, good things are good and bad things are bad. And we should do the good things and not the bad things. Why do you think it won Best Picture? Because of those speeches, because of the the crowd scenes, mm-hmm. because of the, the cultural significance of Zola. Yeah, cultural significance for us Europeans and especially for French people, but... Oh, the, what about like the United States or internationally, apart I mean, from translations of his novels? I think the fact that it's a foreign cultural moment makes it even more prestigious in the mm. the eyes of the uh, American Academy. They have uh, European pretensions. <laughs> uh, yes, the the noble uh, artists of Europe, the the lofty heights to which we can aspire. And the fact that he defended the lower classes, maybe. Yes. Makes him even more of an iconic character or an iconic well, he's already established Ed, as this cultural, uh, culturally important figure at the point where this movie is made. Yeah. So, of course, the Academy has to go along with it. They're not going to, to buck the trend and say anything uh, outrageous or, or contrary. So, They were also riding the wave of... Um, Zola the- is important, and the Academy goes, yes, yes, of course, of course, very important, very important. We agree. They were writing the wave of uh, the previous year's other biopic on uh, Louis Pasteur. I don't know if that was a continuation, a continued interest uh, from the Academy for biopics, or if that was sort of a, a new genre at the time, and maybe that's why it uh, it won Best Picture as well. The new trendy thing. Yeah. In combination with their habit of going with the safe choice yeah and that too who can say no to a a impassioned speech by emile zola it's a shoe in so where do you think it's going to go on your list Uh, there's another hard one because there's nothing there's nothing inherently wrong with it i enjoyed it yeah it does feel like another one of those that's going to evaporate out of my brain just because there's no weight to it at all. Yeah. A, a delightfully crafted balloon that you watch float by in the sky and then it passes out of your view and you never think about it again. Mm. Is it better than the great Zegfield? I mean, I'd much rather watch it again than the great Zegfield, but the great Zegfield was just like eating three steaks in a row. No one would ever want to do that twice. <laughs> I personally, on my list, put it below the great, the great Ziegfeld, just because of the cinematographic prowess that went into the great Ziegfeld. Yeah, there was nothing. I'm, I'm going to remember way more of the great Ziegfeld, especially for the Follies scenes. Yeah, there was so much more artistic splendor in Ziegfeld. Yeah. Though Zola tried, 
with his china collection. <laughs> he did what he could. It's not better than Wings. No. Uh, Mutiny on the Bounty was so disappointing. There's nothing disappointing about this movie. It, it is what it is and does what it intends to do competently and very well. So there's no failure in it, but... But it's still very simple. Yeah, even in its failure, Mutiny and the Bounty had a better setting. Yeah. A much more uh, engaging plot. Though also shares the same simplified morality and very obvious which side you're supposed to be on. I like the boats better, though. <laughs> Ships cooler than Paris. In my personal opinion. I caught divorce. Paris, I am realizing, is not a boat. <laughs> you cannot use Paris to cross the ocean. Yeah, but Paris has the folie bergère and all the croissants in the world and chocolate and wine and entertainment and artists. How can you prefer boats to Paris? You, you haven't spent enough time in Paris. I need to take you back. I think I'm going to put this in between The Great Zegfield and Mutiny on the Bounty. All right. I just, I cannot. The idea of watching The Great Zegfield again <laughs> fills me with such dread that I cannot put it above the I life of, of Emile Zola, despite the fact that it is has much more memorable scenes Stuck inside this uh, 10 miles of stale bread. Yes. So, your current rating? My current rating is number one, Grand Hotel. Number two, Cavalcade. Number three, Wings. Number four, Mutiny on the Bounty. Number five, The Life of Emile Zola. I I've, I like that placement, it being the boundary between the upper and, and lower halves of the yeah. list currently. This is the bar for quality that you have to pass. I mean, weirdly enough, we don't have the same order, but I also have it at number five on my list. <laughs> Boundary for both of us. <laughs> so number five, The Life of Emile Zola. Number six, The Great Zigfield. Number seven, All Quiet on the Western Front. Number eight, It Happened One Night. 90, Broadway Melody. And 91, Cimarron. We have a proper top ten now. Yeah, yeah. So on my list, I still have Wings at number one, All Quiet on the Western Front at number two, number three, Cavalcade, number four, The Great Ziegfeld, number five, The Life of Emile Zola, uh, number six, It Happened One Night, seven, Mutiny on the Bounty, eight, The Broadway Melody, nine, Grand Hotel, and ten, Cimarron. Yeah. We agree. We agree on what's bad. <laughs> yes. We agree that the last one, the middle one, and the last one on our list are, are the same. What Everything in the, the middle is uh, different. What constitutes quality is where we part. Yes. Yeah. I, well, I think you and I are also just drawn to different aspects of uh, the movies and, and, and everything that we watch, whether it's movies or uh, TV series or anime, we're drawn to very different aspects of, of those productions, so... It makes sense that we would have sometimes wildly different opinions and rankings. Yeah. Can you imagine if we only had one list on the show? 
this would not work. The episodes would be five hours long. Yes, because it would take at least an hour to debate <laughs> everything. You're insane. You're insane. <laughs> yeah. And nobody wants to listen to that. Our next movie? You Can't Take It With You. Yes. Which, knowing nothing about the film other than its title, must have something to do with money. Right? I would think so. It might be about somebody dying and just going on a on a shopping spree or just like last time in Grand Hotel when we had uh, Kringline uh, just, you know, on the edge of dying and uh, having a good time, making sure that he had a good time before dying. That's what we should do. We should start uh, making guesses about what the the next movie the is. subjects <laughs> of the next movie are based off just the title. Yeah, well, it starts right here. Okay, can't take it with you. Uh, some some penny pinching uh, bigwig in the in the spirit of Ebenezer Scrooge has to learn about the joy of not being a miser. Perhaps oh. through the uh, romance. I mean, there has to be a romance or illness. The title does imply the the presence of some sort of you know death end of life right maybe 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 i don't know yeah like i say i'm feeling like the this could be another like kringline situation we'll see just going all out burning through all their cash going to vegas and blowing it all on uh, some booger sugar maybe and some ladies that of the would be night interesting that would be interesting and this is so you take you can take it with you 1938 and this is the second Frank Capra movie in this decade. What was Frank the... Capra w- uh, did uh, it happened one night. Ah. Moving up in the world. Moving up. Yeah. And then after that we only have one more movie for the, the 30s. Yeah, the juggernaut gone with the wind yeah. stands in between us and a new decade. Yeah. But then we get to see Clark Gable as uh, Red Butler. In color. In color, nonetheless, yeah. A rare treat. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Anything else? No, I don't think so. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next time. Yeah, and guys, this was our 10th episode. Yep, in double digits. Yeah, we're moving into double digits from now on. Eventually, we will be in triple. Yep. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.